Hello, and welcome to the Film Design Podcast. I'm your host, Max Lincoln. Grant Major is an Academy Award-winning production designer, designing films such as the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Power of the Dog, Mulan, and King Kong. Grant Major. I'm a production designer and um, been doing it for the best part of 45 years now. And uh, I live in New Zealand, work mainly in New Zealand, and um, here I am. <laughs> and um, so how did you get to the point of production designing? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I am a New Zealander, as I say, and I'm a product of the New Zealand film business. So I um, was, my art school training was here in New Zealand. I, uh, my first job was in New Zealand at a TV station. And uh, then I went, did go to the BBC in London and um, learnt so much about my trade at that um, institution. It's fantastic. And then, then I ended up back here in New Zealand about four, four and a half years later. And I've been working in largely in New Zealand ever since, you know. So um, all my best work has been done here, I've got to say. <laughs> you know, although that's not, yeah, I mean, there's been some good experiences I've had in, in America and Australia and things like that. But really, you know, nine-tenths of what I've been doing is from this country. So it's kind of idiosyncratic, you could say, from your, from your audience, you know, who are likely to be from elsewhere. It's, um, I'm just a... I'm a, I'm a product of this place. Well, it's amazing you've been able to stay in your home turf and not have to move to Hollywood or elsewhere. Yeah, well, um, you know, it's been tempting and, and I've been asked a few times. And um, But yeah, I'm a family man, you know. I've raised a child here and uh, got a house and friends and all that sort of stuff. And, it, you know, when you have a family, it's like the priorities change a little bit. And I've never been, um, you know... I'm not sure whether my skills sort of translate that well overseas. You know, I, I, it's been okay, but I just I'm more comfortable here, working here with the with the projects I can get here. So that makes sense, and also you know you've established your own teams and connections yeah. and networks. Yeah, yeah, indeed, lots of lots of friends in the business. <laughs> so. Obviously, you've had a, a fantastic career and you've worked on so many different projects. Um, but as we talked about just before this, um, I'd love to just focus on three kind of sets of projects that have kind of spanned a period of time. Um, so the first one to talk about is the Lord of the Rings series, which, as you mentioned to me before, was 25 years ago. Um, so mm -hmm. obviously, there's been a lot since then. But yeah, I'd love to just talk about that to begin with. Um, and the first thing I was really curious about rewatching it is how fantastic the perspective is between particularly the Hobbits and anyone else or largely Gandalf. And I was super curious as to how you designed and created the sets to to allow those trick shots to happen. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's, uh, the trilogy spanned, for me, um, a technological change that was happening in the business from analogue through to digital. Of course, you know, digital had been around 
during the 90s, um, but was really just, to me, sort of sort of a burgeoning technology. And um, the three years, three and a half years or so that we took to film the project, um, we went from analog in the early days, uh, our analog ambitions, uh, and then digital took over more and more and more. So um, interestingly, we kicked around the note, the, the sort of scale, you know, like what is the scale of a hobbit, you could say. It's not really mentioned in the book so much, you know, it's that they are small, as described by Tolkien, but he doesn't say that they are this height or that height. Um, so there was a while when Peter was interested in them being around about three foot six, and um, we actually named the production Three Foot Six Limited, you know, so that was what we were working under. It wasn't sort of the Lord of the Rings Limited, it was Three Foot Six Limited. <laughs> but then um, a little later, the um, the sort of practicalities of, of being able to do people at that scale was um, found to be very difficult. And uh, the solution that we did find was to cast a chap from London called Kiran Shah, He's kind of well known in the in the sort of stunt areas. He's he's basically he's four foot two. He's a he's a lovely man, and um, this this um, four foot two sort of became a working um, scale for us. And um, after we found Kiran Shah, um, we searched worldwide and found other people, people with the same sort of height, and um, they're all around about. The same size, so became our sort of Hobbit scale. Okay. Um, then it became a sort of an exercise, and okay, how do we do this sort of practically through the camera and not sort of having to do everything on green screen? Um, so we we had Kieran Shah, who was who was who would play um, Bilbo and Co. Um, when he was inter- interact- interacting, beg your pardon, with uh, Gandalf. Um, but we also found, actually, in the same neighbourhood we were working in, Miramar and Wellington, a really, really tall guy. He was about seven foot high. Incredible um, coincidence, really. And he was cast. He was um, found and cast to play the role of Gandalf when we had, um, you know, the real actors playing um, Ian Holm, I think it was, playing um, Bilbo. And, um, you know, so we so essentially it was using these... Uh, scale people for you know we never really see their face of course you know it'd be when they were shooting over the shoulder and things like that and that wasn't exclusively so in terms of the um using these actors we did on occasion use the green screen um to uh, place a um smaller or larger character in the sets we built and of course um bag end we built twice okay at two different scales so we built it at you could say a recognisable scale for the hobbits, yeah. um, who, after all, would have built it originally, and then we built a scale, a smaller scale model for when uh, Gandalf appeared. So everything had, you know, we we're very, very careful with all of the textures and the uh, prop making and all that sort of stuff. Everything was scaled to this um, smaller size. So that was another sort of technique we used, and we, really we were concentrating in particular on the first part of the first movie to hammer home the scale difference because past a point I think the audience the cinema audience will sort of um, buy into the rest of the film where we could be a little more um, 
are um, you know relaxed with how we approach this thing. There's another quite a memorable instance where we um, we built a wagon when Gandalf is first approaching Bag End, and um, it was actually the the um, the uh, um, miniatures cinematographer Alex Funky who would who came up with the right sort of formula for um, being able to lens Gandalf and then have um, uh, Frodo a certain distance away, uh, you know, practically a certain distance away and further back, but being able to have a two-shot on the front of that wagon. So we actually split the wagon in half. We built half the wagon (laughs) at sort of Gandalf size and the other half of the wagon split lengthwise um, at at, uh, Frodo's size. And um, then, you know, being able to sort of angle the camera in the right way, they were able to have that sort of two-shot conversation as they approached Hobbiton um, in camera. It worked like a charm. It was incredible. So um, we use all of those sorts of things, particularly in um, the first film. And um, yeah, and like I say, as the digital side of things sort of took over more, we were able to um, uh, use other other solutions for that. Oh, fantastic. So you mentioned miniatures, and um, one of the miniatures I've remembered, I've seen in some kind of behind-the-scene pictures is Minas Tirith and the big mm. white castle. Um, mm. How, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more about your use of miniatures, and it's such a fascinating, well, thing for mm. me, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, we certainly weren't the first people to use miniatures, but um, Peter Peter Jackson came very much from the mould of these, um, I'd call them old school sort of techniques of being able to shoot things for real, you know, uh, through right through the camera. Um, uh, and without, you know, rather than using building a digital model, which people would do today, you know, he's very keen on this technology of miniatures. Uh, so that that job fell to the Weta Workshop and Richard Taylor's um, crew of people. So it was um, it was all designed first, of course. You know, it's all sort of set designed first, um, but. It's a city, <laughs> and uh, at the end of the day, we couldn't sort of design every single building there. So, past a point, um, Richard sort of, Richard and his team <clears throat> sort of ran with the what had been formulated in terms of the distinct areas. So, the you know, um, as we work our way up the different levels of Minas Tirith, we are definitely at that front gate when they smash it down with a battering ram and coming and going through that gate. So that was built as a practical set. Um, various other parts of it were built as Practical pieces on the way up, as as Gandalf would ride his shadow facts kind of up through the streets and things like that. You know, they were specific set pieces, and so all those things were sort of designed down to the last nut and bolt. And then, um, but of course, the the city itself was very well described in the book, and um, so Richard and his team really just kind of ran with a sort of a um, the specific areas and then invented the sort of um, other areas which were only really seen in the wide shots. And it was a it, they used to call them bigotures instead of miniatures. Yeah. So the uh, as I recall, standing in front of Minas Tirith, it must have been about eight foot high. You know, it's very very high, two point four meters. Wow. So um, they were really big. And uh, once again, sort of Alex Funky and his crew had. Everything sort of um, pre-programmed and pre-designed and pre-lensed and 
everything was plotted um, exactly before the thing was even started to be built. Right. So it's a it's a very technical process, and um, yeah, it was a it was a uh, it was a sight to behold when this thing was um, wheeled into the stage. It's really, <laughs> really incredible, actually. Yeah, stunning. I hope mm. it still exists somewhere, although I'm not really sure how you'd house it. You know, I've got to say, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if it does or not. I wouldn't be surprised if it's one in, uh, somewhere in Peter's warehouses. He's got full of all of his old uh, um, sets, sets and props and drawings and all that sort of stuff. That's it's all there somewhere. Mm. Amazing. Um, yeah. Continuing on practical effects, there's a lot of, I believe, matte paintings in, in the films. Um, particularly, I think it's called Minas Morgal in the third film, the big kind of green um, castle mm. fortress. Mm. Um I believe, I believe that was a matte painting, some of it, where they're kind of climbing the rocks up. Yeah, well, it was a matte painting, but probably by that stage, it would have been a digital matte painting. Oh, I, I see. Think. Okay. And, um, you know, we, we built it, uh, we built the part that they actually climbed on, of course, oh, wow. on the yeah. stage. And uh, being that uh, there was all sorts of safety conditions for that, um, it, re- it was really not that far off the ground. You know, they could really, the actors could really only be, um, I don't know, couple of metres, three metres at most, yeah. um, and they'll be wired in. But there was Gollum there as well. So, you know, there was already kind of a, quite a big digital sort of component. But yeah. look, that's 25, well, 20 years ago when we were filming it. So um, <laughs> I, I, um, I trust my memory on that. But uh, yeah. yeah. That's so fun. Mm. Um, and then to kind of move into the a, a large portion of... Um, the three films is all the battlegrounds. Um, mm. How do you design a battleground? Obviously, there's lots of things involved in terms of stunt coordination and lots of other people. Um, yeah, how do you come up with the looks? And mm. love to hear more mm. about that. Yeah, well, look, uh, they're obviously too big to make as a entire, and it's in, in their entirety. You know, um, they are choreographed and storyboarded and prevised um, to the nth degree um, but we ultimately we've got to, we've got to find a location to stage these things on and um, they usually a partly to do with logistics like um, we need to battlegrounds involve a lot of people and a lot of technical uh, things a lot of set pieces and things like that so we can't have it usually in the middle of nowhere we've got to have them usually within Kui of a of a city and by and large on Lord of the Rings we look for them nearby to Wellington um, so we uh, we did find a sort of a, sort of like a utility area in a way because you can imagine like the the, the amount of trucks and Winnebago's and uh, um, camera gear and the changing rooms and the catering and the tents and all that sort of stuff have to be uh, it has to work as a sort of an indu- semi-industrial site. And then within a very short distance, like 100 metres or so, then there's the filmable um, area of the battlefield. And uh, so that was, it tends to sort of fall into that criteria by and large. But then, you know, there's different battles in the stories have different surfaces, you know, like the um, the one in front of Helm's Deep was in a sort of a rockier sort of... Um, subalpine sort of place so that was i think it's filmed on a on a quarry actually just uh um within the within the um commutable range of wellington and um then the one in the outside of the minus tirith um 
that was in a sort of a grassy area. So that was likewise a little bit further out, but we found these fields, which are essentially farmland. Um, but we would get in there early and let the grass grow so that it sort of has a natural kind of a feeling to it. And then in that instance, New Zealand's very, very green, you know, much like England, actually. Mm. So um, lots of chlorophyll in all the plants. So um, it, that didn't want to be part of our look. We wanted it to be more sort of, um, uh, what's the word, sort of dried, dried looking grass. So we did have to find and apply an organic desiccant, it's called, which is a, um, it's a, it's a natural occurring um, product that's made from um, coconuts, uh, coconut trees, actually. And uh, so it, when it's applied to leaves, it sort of makes the leaves die back, but the roots still stay alive. Okay. So we were able to sort of like make the grass go dead looking, um, or dried looking, I should say. But, uh, you know, within a very short amount of time, it just grows back. So that Amazing. was um, one of the things we had to do. And, uh, you know, then there was a fallen olifounts, those great big elephant creatures that mm. we that were sculpted and made and massive amount of weaponry and um, dead horses. And, you know, <laughs> it just goes on and on and on. There's a whole <laughs> list of things that we produce to stage all these these particular instances in the, yeah. in the um, battle. So how much of the, um, because as you were saying, it's, you know, as CGI was taking over more, how much of the elephants were practical and how much were CGI? Oh, look, the 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 fallen elephant that we had was a, a polystyrene sculpt. Okay. Um, but the pretty much everything else was digital for that. I mean, they don't exist. <laughs> Four tusks elephants, in the, especially on a gigantic scale. Uh, yeah. But maybe. it's interesting. You, yeah, interesting thinking about it because um, not all the battles were done on foot. You know, there's there are these yes, horse charges and yeah, things like yeah. that as well. So we found locations in the South Island and um, wrangled a lot of horses, like hundreds wow. of horses together. And so they all needed riders and they all needed costumes. And they were largely from the farms around there. You know, so um, a lot of farming still gets done off the back of a horse so um, we were very lucky to have that sort of um, you know be able to resource all those things and then they all had to be in uh, the horses need to be in costumes with all of their armor and things like that so it's really it's a manufacturing process and it just needs a lot of planning a lot yeah. of planning and a lot so I'd of love to, thought put into it so there's obviously like um, a big crossover between costume and design when it comes to mm. armor and and, and mm. those kind of elements. Like, I'd love to hear more about your relationship with the costume designer in terms of crafting those mm. shared elements. Mm. Yes, indeed. Well, look, there was uh, Nyla Dixon, a very good friend of mine, was the costume designer. But uh, there was such a lot of armour, as you say. So um, that was done by Richard Taylor and his team uh, the, in terms of the manufacturing. The design of the armour and the... Um, uh, the horse armor and things like that was sort of a process, a design process that sort of spanned the um, the art department, which I was sort of um, in, um, as well as um, the you know the Weta workshop people did bring their own artists as well, like particularly. Things were usually sculpted in miniature before we would start. So drawings would only get us so far. You know, there'd, there'd be beautiful drawings that Alan and John would have done. And um, but then they are given to the um, the um, 
Marquette sculptors, and then they would make these things so that we could really kind of have a look at them and and um, critique them, change them as required. It was also really really good to be able to um, line up the the Gondorian armor and then the dwarven armor and the the elven armor and sort of look at them as a ensemble and sort of um, you know adjust them accordingly so we get these distinct sort of um, types of things. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, we, we made all the horse tack and all the horse um, armour sort of in-house. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, and then the, the we had a workshop sort of factory made all the multiples of, uh, and the, and the uh, hero armour, things like that. And then Nyla, you know, she, she played a huge role in um, all the other soft fabrics and leather work and hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a real um, epic job that they did. Yeah, hugely epic, especially with all the background extras. Um, were they as just as detailed as the foreground, or did you have to kind of be a bit more? Yeah, not not go to the full details. Yeah, well, there's definitely hierarchies. You know, yeah. closer to camera, they get the, the most of the most of the um, detail put on them, and the mid ground <clears throat> less so. And then the vast armies that are um, that are um, you see on the screen are largely digital. Um, digital extras so that's actually another fundamental kind of um invention if you like uh from lord of the rings times um the what are they called Ma- yeah there's a program called massive which is a uh, which was invented by weta digital for multiplications of armies but all able to be um manipulated to um work as a figure in the background or in mass as, mm. in the background as individuals and as armies, so it was a it was an incredible thing to see. Um, you know, yeah, I remember watching really. a behind the scenes documentary when um, they came out all about it. It was just fascinating. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, you touched on it briefly, and I'd love to expand upon um, designing the different worlds of the the humans, the elves, and kind of I guess the dark lords mm. armies. Mm. Um, yeah, how did you? I, I know you worked along with the kind of the Tolkien illustrators mm. to kind of. Mm come up with some of the ideas but i'd love to hear more about the process of differentiating their specific looks i know there's a lot of sub subgroups within that but mm-hmm. yeah yeah well look uh you know the source material is the books of course and they go into exhaustive detail about um create you know inventing the the worlds that they live in and they all their backstories and all their sort of um yeah all the subtleties in their culture so we started with some brilliant material there. Um, but words only go so far. And, uh, you know, Alan and John sort of brought in their sort of uh, European and Anglo um, aesthetics to things, which was absolutely essential. But um, there's also in Tolkien's world, you know, there was a sort of, he, he wrote at a, time in, a, in the early 20th century um, which is reflected in the in the book really there's a sort of a geopolitical thing that um, comes through in the book that I think is reflected in how we resolved everything so you know um, Tolkien himself was a linguist and um, sort of specialized in Nordic uh, languages and and um, 
folks, folklore and all that sort of stuff. So there's a sort of a northern European aspect to things. There's also his experiences in the second, in the First World War and the, the sort of Germanic um, uh, interrelationship, you could say, with the with the um, with the, the English side of things. There's the the sort of East, this thing about the East and sort of you could, let's call it Russia and the steppes and all that sort of stuff that um, we see in the other armies that that, that turn up. Um, and then there's the English itself, which is, um, you know, there's, it's sort of stepped in um, these sorts of, it's almost like a forgotten folklore in England in a way. Um, I remember reading that they, after the Norman Conquest, you know, England lost a lot of its um, its early sort of um, stories and folklore and things like that. So the, the sort of existent stuff still in the, from the um, Norway and Finland and all those sorts of things, are still semblances of what, that would have been in England. Yeah, anyway, so I'm getting off the point a little bit. Um, these distinct uh, armies have um, come from distinct places, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm. Uh, the elves uh, live in trees. Eter- they, are, they live uh, forever. They are a maybe a, a race that's on the wane or declining, you know, or they're, they're leaving essentially to go to the west. Um, and uh, so there's less and less of them, but they have this nature, close to nature, aesthetic to them. Uh, you know, their their detailing is trees and 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 you know leaves and all that sort of stuff. So you can see a lot of that in the in their um, design of their of their armor and costumes and all that sort of stuff. Uh, dwarves, they have their own sort of backstory with Durin, you know, going way, way back to before the sun was rose and before the moon came out, there was Durin in the underworld and they would be mine they were mining, they've spent most of their their um cultural history underground in the um, you know, and the mines of Moria are one of these places. So they've got this kind of um more rocky aesthetic you could think you could you could say, you know, sort of a harder squarer, uh, craggier kind of uh, aesthetic to their look. They're also stocky, stocky people, you know, so they've got, got the sort of, let's just say, they're sort of more straight lines and squares than the than the elves, which are more fluid and kind of graceful and, 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 and what have you. Yeah, and then the, um, the humans are, um, the race of men is, um, you know, that's had its kind of ups and downs, you could say, through Tolkien history, but it's also, there's some... There's a thing about the sort of, um, it's almost like the golden, they've passed their golden years. And, you know, they've, they've, they've had this sort of empire. And they've, had, they've had this sort of high point in their life, in their culture that's now getting a little bit lost. They, they don't have a king. You know, they just have a, a stand-in for the king um, when we come to the story. They, so they, they're, they're fighting on their last legs, um, against the dark forces off to the east so there's this you know there was a sort of a classic almost like a a, you know mediterranean kind of um maybe roman sort of or romanesque quality to their to their armor their costumes and their architecture Mm. so um you know it was kind of nice to find these examples even though it's a you know Peter never liked to use the word fantasy. He says, this is not a fantasy. This is a, 
alternative history. Mm, and nice. so, and and the the audience, um, the cinema audience, needs to have touchstones for these cultures. And so, finding these sort of existing examples that we could um, work into the design of the film was essential. Yeah, I mean, it's all fascinating. And I love the, the, the kind of the real life examples. I think that grounds the whole films. Mm. Um, you can really see it. So we met in person at the production designers gathering and you mentioned a really fascinating story about coming up with the Eye of Sauron and how that looked. I'd love to have you talk yeah. more about that. I thought it was great. Yeah. Well, look, for a start, I didn't invent the Eye of Sauron per se. I think we're talking more about yeah, the, yeah. the Tower of Baradur. That was it, the yeah, Tower yeah, yeah. Of Baradur. Yeah. And of course, we, you know, thinking about Sauron, we only ever see his eye. We know him. He's there through the story from beginning to end. And um, he's he's the dread of him is is sort of, to me, manifested in his absence in a way. But we see this piercing eye that's searching, searching, and searching for that ring, which it must have. Um, at the same time, the Tower of Baradur is, is, is grown from the deepest foundations that were never fully destroyed um, from the Silmarillion. Uh, in those early times, it was never fully sort of um, gotten rid of. And so the orcs and the what have you are building this great, this, this tower. And uh, I remember having a meeting. It's interesting, actually, being part of the core creative team. You know, and it's not that much. You know, not that many people. Andrew and and Andrew Lesney and Peter, of course, and the writers and um, and uh, Richard Taylor and myself and Alan and John were pretty much it. You know, and so we would have these meetings. Um, and you know, we'd focus on a particular thing that this the book may describe, but. As I was saying before, words only go so far, you know. And um, we think, oh, kind of what would Baradur look like and kind of what, you know, this this eye, that's flaming eye, which is described in the book, um, you know, how would that sort of feature as part of a tower? And I was, and I was um, it's interesting because I remember these things quite vividly and because um, it's sort of, you know, the, the ta- that tower lives on as a sort of a, as a, a, um, very strong symbol of the mm. dark side of the Very story. So. And I was, I was yeah. saying, well, you know, it's okay, it's an eye that's so fierce and so sort of caustic and so um, in, energized that it's maybe it's um, like burnt away, it's etched away the top of that tower so that it's, um, it's sort of situated within it's the negative shape of what it's burnt away and so it just leaves these two sort of horn shape this these horns that would sort of um surround the the uh the eye and you know um so that was that was really good and then then john went away and did some john Howell went away and did some versions of that and he elaborated on the whole tower and things like that and it turned out to be a beautiful piece of design and uh, like i say it's very sort of fundamental to the story mm-hmm. so there's a few other instances like that that were that were really cool to be um at the sort of um you know the sharp end of yeah um, so what were some of the other interesting bits that you were at the table for um i'd love to hear more about them yeah yeah well look in moria there's um in moria there's a a a gigantic hall called the duero delf in fact the whole 
the whole of the Mines of Moria is called Dwarodel, but the sort of centre of that is described as, a, as an enormous hall. But as you can appreciate, the lights have been, were turned out when, you know, this, it's in blackness, it's darkness. Mm. And all we can really see in there is, is what's illuminated by Gandalf's staff most of the time. But, you know, we're talking about kind of what that could look like. And I remember pitching to Peter that maybe it's just like um, we never ever get to see the extents of that hall. It just goes off into blackness and we just see it as a multiple row of columns that stretch as far as the eye can see into the darkness and as far up into the into darkness. But um, it's sort of punctuated by when the um, the um, the uh, what's it called the Balrog, Balrog yeah. the Balrog of Morgoth makes an appearance. <laughs> fantastic oh my name. god, what a fantastic name! Yeah, that such is. good name, the Balrog of Morgoth. Yeah, and um, you know we're talking about how it would sort of you really only see its light uh, appearing as its sh- as the shafts sort of pan their way behind all this row this these rows of columns, and you know so that was another sort of a creative moment we had, and then that sort of segued into the the stairs that they escape down before mm. they get to the bridge. And uh, I remember sort of talking with Peter about how the whole action sequence could could unfold with the um, the Balrog smashing his way through the the wall upstairs and rocks falling away and busting the stairs that they're on, which creates this sort of column that teeters, you know, could go forward or back or sideways. And then Peter added in the sort of double jeopardy of the of the arrows flying down. And, and so it was, you know, it turned out to be a really fantastic sequence. Oh, but I remember incredible sequence, the, yeah. the sort of the embryonic time that that was, um, you know, sort of invented from. It was, it was brilliant. Yeah, and it really punctuated mm. the end of the film as well. It was um, so gripping. Um, oh, yeah. To have to wait another year um, was, was hellish at the time, I remember. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, fantastic. Um, so the next film I'd like to talk about um which again was taken from some well-known IP is the Disney movie Milan, the live-action remake. Mm. And mm. what's fascinating about that as a point of comparison is it's now at a point where VFX is very much at the forefront of most mm. blockbuster movies. Um, but it's also based on a well-known animated movie. Um, so I'd love to hear about the research process to begin with and how much did you extract from the original um, film and how much you mm. kind of went through your own means of discovery. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, well, look, I've, I'm a good friend of Nikki Caro, the director. So um, yeah, from we well have sort of empathy. As well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and before that, actually, when she was still at art school. But um, the she got hold of me after she had got the job, obviously, and they had a script and, and it was done... Um, under the auspices of the um, Disney Corporation. Uh, so Disney had produced at that point a two large volumes of research that they had done in-house, wow. uh, which was fantastic to be able to read through because not only did it give me my first glimpse of a world that I knew very little about yeah. at the time, but also let me see where Disney was coming from. You know, what's their because that's part of the sort of journey and pre-production to find out what expectations are and what the sort of the Disney world, um, Disney Corporation sort of take on this these sorts of um, movies are. So that was really, really good. Um, it's the, In terms of the the very successful animated film, Nikki said to me from the early days, you know, we're not, 
we're not remaking that per se, you know. Um, it's very much part of American and worldwide culture, that film, and so and we can't ignore it, but it won't have singing, <laughs> and it won't have the little dragon. Yeah. And it's more a story, uh, from Nikki's point of view, of um, sort of female empowerment. So it's it's um, it was going to be a grittier story than the the animation was going to be. Yeah, what was I should say? So um, you know there were there were two um, building blocks for me to sort of contemplate as I started. So I had to get into what the Tang Dynasty um, era was all about, and um, like I say, it was really good to trawl through these research projects, uh, research uh, books that the um, Disney Corporation gave us, but. We also brought in our own experts on um, warfare. There was a guy, an American guy, who was um, had a lot to tell us about what it actually meant to go to war in the, in that era. And and for the listeners, the Tang Dynasty is roughly 300 AD through to roughly 700 AD. So it's a long time back, mm. well before um, the sort of military. Um, structures and things like that we've got these days. However, China was a very sophisticated place back then, very sophisticated, very um, culturally very aware and very accepting of a lot of different races and all that sort of stuff. But it had this, it had a, um, a, a, a wars going on, skirmishes going on on its western and northern boundaries. So that's what the the um, sort of geopolitics were, if you like. Mm. Um, but, you know, the film started... Uh, with young Mulan sort of um, coming to terms with having to take her father's place and um, and uh, and go to learn to be a soldier in a man's world and this this, this um, theme of familial piety is was the number one theme but also of the patriarchal sort of um, world that we were he was living in then so you know we had to um, Learn about all that. So you know, it was, it was um, the that was the American side, and I should and I should say um, very strongly that there was a Chinese research side to this as well, and mm. it was very politically um, uh, and culturally necessary for us to engage with Chinese academics of in course. the same sort of way. Um, there's a guy called Bill Kong who's a, a I think he's based in Hong Kong. I think and he's very well known in the film um, film world. He came up with some um, do's and don'ts for uh, designing and for making Mulan. Um, you know, Mulan's a very old story, yeah. and it had been made many, many, many times before Disney ever got hold of it. It yeah. goes way back. In fact, I was talking about Tolkien earlier on and, and folklore. You know, yeah. it goes very, It's one of Chinese most important folkloric stories, actually. Um, so you know, there were versions and there's versions and there's versions made of this film. Um, yeah, so we did try and engage with uh, academia, the Chinese academia, and we were, I would say, marginally successful with that. We got some pointers. Um, Disney, obviously, you know, from a higher level, had been engaging with them, and uh, and uh, you know, just just being able to market the film in China itself, you know, has a lot of sort of political implications. So course, they yeah. were they were um, they were involved in that sort of level as well. But, you know, from my point of view, there is the research, terribly important, but we're making a piece of entertainment here that has to uh, be liked by a 21st century audience. 
and um, that was sort of eclipsed in a way the the fundaments of research. You yeah. know, we did our very best to be in that time and place, but at the end of the day, it was uh, we had to make um, creative choices that um, helped to tell the story a and was entertaining and of course. all that sort of stuff. So it was a formula. Yeah. Mm. Um, to go back onto VFX. Um, I'd love to hear about the process of designing oh, yeah. VFX, and um, I mean it's it's obviously interesting how things have changed since before. But um, because VFX has become such a huge part of of films, and um, yeah, it's just a really fascinating thing in mm. terms of how much you design for the actual mm. VFX process. I'd love to hear more about that and the process itself. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, <clears throat> you're right. You know, it's it's. VFX is ubiquitous in these in these uh, big yeah. um, Hollywood films now, and uh, I'm very pleased to say that um, Sean Faden, who was a visual effects supervisor, was a very nice guy, a very approachable guy, and very um, open to the collaborative process that we have on a creative level. Um, he, right from the very early days, um, I was very keen to design the entire film. And, you know, that's not just the standing sets and not just the location, finding the locations and the, all that sort of stuff. It's got to be, it's got to involve the visual effect extensions that we do to the environment. So um, I would, I engage them, a group of very talented um, concept artists, and we would produce these keyframes, um, these big production moments, um, right through until, right through to quite detailed um, smaller moments in the in the script, and so we had this big library of images that we were we had produced for visual effects that included usually included visual effects and the built environment that, right. we, were, that we're making. So you could the two could interrelate. We also could study where we could also study where our physical world finished and the visual effect world extends from. So it's a very it's a tool for working all these sorts of things out as well. But um, I was also able to sort of holistically design the film. So there's nothing left to um, other processes in the post-production phase that I wasn't in control of. Mm. And, um, you know, and Sean and his team were very faithful to those. They, they, they were stuck with them very, very carefully. Um, so um, very pleased about that. But they are very much part of what we do. It's still a production design job for me, though. Yeah, you know, all those pieces. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it. I think it definitely should be. Um, but I've definitely heard stories of designers not necessarily being able to do the VFX elements or being taken mm. off before that's happened and things going a little bit random. Dare mm. I say? Yeah, well, it didn't happen in this case. But at the same time, I'm I'm out of a job. Went on wrap, <laughs> and a lot of the post production yeah. went on for about a year, or maybe even more wow. than that, after I'd finished. So it's um, <clears throat> yes, I give them all as much material as I possibly can, but I'm not there to sort of um, vet the whole thing. Mm. And um, but you know, it, well, it's not just artwork. It's 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 reference material. It's texture samples. It's um, even practical pieces of wood and color mm. and all these sorts of things that go into that went into the thinking behind the the reference material. So it's not just a picture; it's like a, it's a it's a it's it's a fully formed sort of concept that um, I pass over to them. So I think um, you know, obviously, different productions and different personalities have different ways of working. But I was um, 
in, in every instance, in every film I've done, there's always been a very collaborative process between myself and the visual, visual effects people. So, Yeah, it's how it should be. So talking about one of the specific sets, um, I love the, the kind of the, the Majesty's Chamber, like the big ruler's mm. chamber with the big gold um, throne. Um, I'd love to mm. talk about that set in particular just because it was so visually exciting. Mm. Yeah, Max, I mean, that's my favourite the whole thing but look i liked everything about it everything about the design of it it's got to say but there's that's a very interesting example of of reference and histrionics versus entertainment sure um the there was almost no reference for what a throne room looked like at that time interestingly architecture was not really um was not really recorded that much in in uh, Tang Dynasty Chinese times, and there's almost no buildings left from that time at all. I mean, it's just there's literally two or three buildings wow. from then, and yeah. that's it. So <clears throat> there was a lot left to the interpretation. But um, I did have to sort of extrapolate from um, paintings and whatever sources I could what the logical sort of hierarchical layout for a room would have been, which I did do. And um, it's interesting that the, the city of Xi'an, which was the um, imperial city at the time, <clears throat> is laid out in, in a similar, very hierarchical mm. way. You know, there's, there's all sorts of factors that come into that. Um, but, you know, that, that you'd, have, you'd always have the, the king's residence against a hill. It's sort of like a defensive mm. thing, I guess. You'd have it aligned to the light in a particular way. You'd have water, sort of um, uh, a water source in a particular sort of way for the city. So interestingly, from that, I sort of designed the layout of what the throne room would have been in this much the same sort of way. So the king always has a large screen, or should I say the emperor, uh, would have had a large screen behind him. <clears throat> um, they didn't have furniture like we know them today. So the, when I talk about the throne, it would have been something like a you'd sit sort of um, off the floor, but in a sort of a cross-legged position. Um, I did want to lift them up on a dais so that when people spoke to him, mm-hmm. they would do it on a sort of a... Um, he would always be higher than the, the people he was speaking to. And in, in fact, you're never able to actually look at the king. You're never able to look at him in the face or in the eye, because it was sort of sacrilegious at the time. Um, but, you know, we had to um, shoot a movie with drama in it, and so all those <laughs> sorts of things were sort of, okay, we accept that, but we're going to put it to one side. But it's the same with the throne itself. You know, it had to be, it had to have a wow factor to it. It had to be imperial. I did find two Tang Dynasty sculptures. They're very small. They're only about 100 mil high. Mm. Um in a museum that I um, copied and blew up into a sort of a supersized them to be these big dragons either side of the throne. Um, there was a, there was a uh, story point about the um, phoenix and the dragon, which are on the left and the right of the emperor. So all these sort of factors went into it. And then there's a lighting side of things. You know, I need to make it look as though it was lit by flame, with candles and things like that, even though practically it was lit by stage lighting so you know a lot of there's a lot of um creative factors go into it to make a kind of a, a eye-popping moment mm. and then there's the mechanics and the um all these other sort of crafts that have to work to in, in in sync to be able to 
make it happen. I'd love to talk about, more about um, integrated lighting and um, the candles and how did you mm. go about that? How much was actual practical candles and how much was, um, uh, I guess, light bulb trickery? Yeah, well, look, uh, in every instance, it, need to look, it needed to look like it was lit by candles. That's all I had. Mm. In fact, even candles themselves, you know, there would have been animal fat or something like that. Oh, there would have been very smoky um, sorts of things. Um, so... Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it's just stagecraft, really. You know, we made a, needed to make it look like it was of the period techno, technologically. But um, in practice, there was any amount of lights that Mandy Walker, the DP, sort of needed to have to. Um, but, you know, also with digital cameras these days, low light is, is way more usable than it used to be. Um, uh, even, actually, I must say, during Lord of the Rings, you know, we were shooting on film for Lord of the Rings. And... Um, digital for Mulan and so and the light you know the the lights were not as powerful on Mulan at the end of the film there's this um, wonderful fight on scaffolding and um, they're even kind of fighting as the scaffolding timber is spinning around Um, I'd love to talk about that set because it's very much an example of where design and stunts have to completely integrate um, so how did the process begin for that set? I'm sure you had your concepts, but did the how much were you led by the stunt team and the practicalities mm. of the fights? Mm-hmm. Great. Well, a little bit of background to that. There was it was known that in the Tang Dynasty, a new palace was being made, uh, was made, I should say, for the new emperor. Um, and uh, so Nikki wanted to use, wanted to have a space like that, a sort of a it's like a jungle gym, you know, a, a space where the the physical story could, um, the fight, the final fight could sort of be staged. And, and um, so that was a perfect thing to be able to have. Um, so, uh, again, sort of had to extrapolate out what how, how they go about building the uh, a place like that. And interestingly, the foundations of that palace still exist. It's, it's a big earth platform so we knew the size of it and things like that but um, I had to sort of invent what the structures were in that that allowed for the fight to happen as it was scripted Um, we did that from a series of concept drawings to start off with in one of those concept drawings we invented a sort of a crane arrangement and had a piece of wood dangling from it as part of the illustration. Oh. And I think when Nikki and the stunt coordinator and the storyboarder all got together, they sort of looked at these and <laughs> they sort of integrated it into the story. So it was a, uh, it was kind of a nice little um, segue there to have something that was basically a piece of um, set dressing um, used as a, as a cool sort of fight thing. Because there was, you know, the stunt people are always looking for new ideas mm. for these things, you know, to do things that hadn't been done before. And there was a lovely kind of uh, um, face-to-face moment with the nemesis of the film and Mulan herself, um, you know, on this dangling piece of wood. It just, yeah, it all worked. So lots of fun. Yeah, and it was a fantastic um, moment, especially as it was spinning around. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Um I'd love to talk about fortresses. Um, there's several in the film, and um, as you said, there's not very much architectural references back then. How did you come up with the, the styles to kind of differentiate them but keep them within the same world? Yeah, yeah, great. So um, 
there's no Tang Dynasty fortresses that exist still, uh, but there are one or two that came shortly after that uh, that do exist still, way out in the west of China. And uh, I was very fortunate to be able to go and visit one of those places and understand what the um, sort of rammed earth structures were for these, because essentially they're made out of dirt uh. or um, mud. and um, <clears throat> But just they're just sort of built up layer upon layer upon layer, and they've got enormously thick walls to be able to support something that goes very, very high. I mean, you've got to think of a kind of a six-story building right. is the height of these walls. They're just enormous things. So um, studying and understanding that was a key element. Um, I must say the, the, uh, the example that I did visit had quite a complex series of doors and um, corridors that allowed access into and out of the, the um, castle. But Nikki did want something simpler. She wanted something when, they, when the raiders um, break into the castle. She just wanted to have one set of doors and they're inside. So I had to sort of bite the bullet and, and um, sort of create something that may or may not have been there in the Tang Dynasty. I suspect it would have been a little more uh, complicated. But um, but we did build, uh, it took about, it was about five containers high, as I recall, a big section of wall. Wow. It, was a, yeah. it was a, like a big L shape. Yeah. <clears throat> I had two doors made in it, one for one set, and then that was covered over, and we had another door made for the other set. So we, had, we were able to... to um, redress and reorientate everything to um, from one castle to another castle and with the right um, visual effects set extensions we could make them into distinctive um, quite distinctive different forts um, but it was one of our bulkier sets you could say it was very mm. big and uh, and we shot uh, we shot um, sequences outside of that at a location in the middle of the North Island of New Zealand on a sort of a desert plain and then um, yeah the inside the inside piece was shot on literally on the back lot in Auckland here. Mm. Another set that I quite liked, um, this kind of volcanic looking floor where Mulan meets um, the female antagonist. Oh yeah. Um, I just really loved the, I guess the, the texture and the colors. Um, and the, I believe there was a shot from underneath it looking up at her. Mm. Um, I was wondering, wondering what the reference was for that and um, how much creativity did you have in terms of coming up with that environment? Yeah, well, that's a fabulous question. No one's ever asked me that before, <laughs> and it's a it's a <clears throat> very um, interesting thing to sort of um, describe because in its original in the original script that was a lake, an oh, icy lake, okay. and um, you know she would walk out on the ice, it would crack, and it was when she was confronting the witch, and uh, it. it um, felt like it had been done before. In fact, I'd physically done that before in an earlier movie I'd <laughs> designed. Yeah. Um, and so Nikki and I sort of were thinking about what else other natural elements we could bring in to make the battlefield more dynamic and make the, and then that segues into a, a more mystical and um, weird sort of environment. So New Zealand has a lot of thermal... Um, uh, places, you know, volcanoes and uh, well, thing, things like that. 
And so we thought that'll be a really good thing to be able to utilize for our film. China does have a tiny amount of that. So, but this is a sort of a, um, this is our sort of, you know, we sort of supersized it, you could say, for, for our, for our movie. Um, we went on a helicopter scout to a island called White Island, which, um, is an active volcano and, um, thought about how we could take elements of that and bring it into the battlefield, you know, make these sort of steamy, sulfurous kind of yeah. um, fissures in the ground, which we did do. And um, and then when she catches up with a witch, it would be full-on volcanic sort of environment. So we made that in the stages. We made a big wall of, of sulfury, sulfury sort of um, uh, um, side of a sort of volcanic... Um, hill and then the surface that they were on which you know was played out much the same way as an icy lake you know would she would when she finds herself on it it's cracking underneath her feet and she would never be able to escape from underneath um so we we, we've got a um a very very talented technician here um alistair hopwood his name is and and we formulated with him um a waxy resiny um super colorful Kind of a, a crust that we could um, build over the build in the in the stages over the top of a sculpted environment. Um, have all these fissures, these steam fissures and things like that, sort of um, jetting out of it. Um, and then when we see her underneath, uh, as she's walking on this thing, as it's the jeopardy of it cracking underneath her feet, we did have a um, a, a film water tank on the uh, back lot that we were. That we had, so we built that uh, a similar sort of resinous thing, actually mainly out of waxes, I must say, um, which we could film from the underneath of, and um, so all these sort of things, elements cut together to um, create that sequence. Mm. Yeah, I, I never went to to the island you mentioned, but I went to around there in New Zealand. It's fascinating, fascinating mm. all of the volcanic places. It actually, it actually erupted not that long really? ago, and it, oh, wow. yeah, with loss of life, I must God. say. Um, so it's a you can't go there anymore. You, ah. it's out of bounds now. Well, it's amazing you got to experience it while you could. Yeah, yeah. Um, to move on to the next film, uh, which again is is quite radically different, um, "The Power of the Dog" by Jane Campion. I believe it's it's based on a book. Is that correct? Absolutely, by yeah. Thomas Savage. The yeah, Power of the awesome. Dog. So again, you you are working from some known IP, but um, I'd love to hear about how you created the look of this distinct period setting. Mm. Yeah, well, look, um, I've known Jane for 30 years and I was absolutely thrilled when she contacted me again to see if I'd be interested in working on it. <clears throat> of course, I didn't have to think twice about that, so <laughs> I jumped straight in. It's a, it's a, the, the book is a lovely book to read. I've got to say, like, it's a, it's a, it's almost like a, um, a forgotten book in many ways, you know. I I hadn't heard of it before Jane introduced me to it, but it's a it had the rights to the the book had been held by Paul Newman actually for a very long period of time, and before wow. him several others. So it had been on the cusp of being made for twenty years, maybe thirty years. Um, so it, and it never had been. Jane got the rights to it, and she wrote a fabulous script. It's one of the best scripts I've ever read, I must say. And so from the very beginning, there's like a world-class director in Jane Campion, a beautifully written script with all the, um, with a sort of a, 
it's got some quite radical sort of contemporary themes in it and sort of some um, very deep sort of personal tragedy and drama involved with it, which is, you know, a sort of trite saying it in a way, but those sets of scripts don't come along very often. You know, you can see it in the Oscars, you know, a lot of Mm. the time the, the, the best film comes along, it's often not the biggest and the sort of the most eye-popping. It's the ones with the deepest, most sensitive stories and characterization and the best ensemble cast doing their very best work and things like that. And that's what Power of the Dog promised to me. Yeah. Um, the time and the place were very specific, as in Montana in 1927. And, um, or maybe actually, having said that, I think it was 25 that Jane wanted to be at. Um, the, uh, the cattle ranch, um, it's an iconic part of American culture, the West, and I'd never done it before. Um, we were going to make it in New Zealand, um, which is, you know, sounds a little radical perhaps, but in fact, New Zealand is very, very good for period Americana because it's um, Montana itself has changed over the, you know, since the hundred years, since the 1920s. Yeah. It's um, Jane, Jane and co visited there and couldn't find what they were looking for. And in central Otago, in the, in the middle of the South Island of New Zealand, it's got these big grassy wildernesses. And, uh, um, you know, so it's a very good choice there. Um, and then it was a matter of just digging into the... Um, the, the the architecture of the time, but in particular the way it reflected the character's backstory and the the the, the dramatic situation that the story was based on. Hmm. Yeah, one of the things I, I was wondering about was um, windows or no windows, um, because some of the sets at the start have none, and then the actual the brother's house does. Um, was that something to do with money at the time, or like? Um, what was the reasoning behind that? Yeah, I never thought about windows or no windows before. I don't know really what what that means to me. I mean, yeah. there's always going to be windows, but yeah, I didn't know um, if it was like a poverty thing or because um, I guess glass is an expensive thing back then, um, in particular. Well, look, uh, we should talk about the house in the first instance. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, the house was built by and owned by very wealthy people who came in from the east coast of America, and the aesthetic people. And they um, in their, in their, they made an aesthetic decision, in a way, to come out west and to be cattle farmers, which, you know, sounds counterintuitive. But, you know, when you think they had aspirations, the mother and father had aspirations to be the centre of the social scene of Montana. Yeah. Um, they had no problem affording a house the size that they built you know, it was grand yeah, on a grand huge. scale yeah. with all the windows and all that sort of stuff. Um, so that was, you know, that was the basis of the um, of the uh, design of the house. You know, it had to reflect that story, but it also had to reflect the situation that we find ourselves in in 1925 where the mother and father had left after a family altercation in 1900. And... Um, you could say that time stopped in a way. The two brothers, Phil and George, are still at the house. Um, they would have been, they would have inherited their house in their early 20s, in their early 20s, and now they're in their 40s. Um, and um, it's like um, there's atrophy in the sort of family situation. So 
um, I wanted to make these big hollow interiors, you know, where they where Phil, who has this family under his thumb in a way, kind of can stalk around that 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 house, echoing his boots as he his boots echoing through the the wooden floors and up the staircase and things like that. He's like a minotaur in a, in a way. And in fact, having said that, there was a conscious decision to make him look like a satyr in many ways. You know, when you look at his profile, yeah, you know, the, Where his the legs costume are. design, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kirsty Cameron, dear friend of mine, did the costumes on it, and um, that was very much part of the brief. So, you know. Again, all these sort of subtle things were there to describe the dramatic moment that the story starts and to help to hope, hopefully reflect on a situation, that a, a, a sort of a, a prehistory that got us to that sort of starting story point. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that definitely all comes across. And one of the things that particularly resonated with me was the colour palette. It's kind of very murky brown throughout the whole film. Mm. Um, I love to talk about colour. And um, did was this something that started with Jane or yourself, or how did how did the um, that specific aesthetic evolve? Mm-hmm. Well, look, you can see aesthetically there's a reductionist kind of uh, theme through the whole film. Everything was paired back to its essential, and we only used what had to be in the frame. So we tried to sort of empty everything else out. Um, it needed to be. Um, the landscape needed to be sort of a wilderness, you know, like away from everything and dry. You know, it, it, um, we try to bring the color palette down to just earth colors, earth colors and blood. You know, so there's two two colors that were used in a way. You know, red um, in its subtle forms and browns and these sort of earthy natural sort of colors. So, you know, we did actually. I talked about. Um, desiccants for grass we had to go through that whole process again outside the outside the wow. in our uh, location yeah and we're lucky that we were shooting in summertime when the the Hawkton range which is the mountains behind us were dried off anyway so you know um yeah but it was really part of this reductionist theme as i was saying before yeah um i think it kind of adds more power to the actual performances as well because you're not distracted by um garish colors or or other such things. Mm. Yeah, well, everything was very thoughtful and very contemplated, um, right down to all those, all these things we've been talking about, all the colours, all the silhouettes of the of the people as they stand in the in the landscape themselves are very sort of thought through. Um, there's a little bit of progression through the film, you know when. When we see it um, in its um, early stages, it's just those natural colours. But when Rose comes, mm. um, and you know, looking back to Rose's restaurant and things like that, it's she brings the colour into that place. You know, so there's a little bit of rosy floral wallpaper mm. creeping in here and there. Yeah. And then when she arrives, she's in the sort of uh, rose colours. And then when she she finds her sanctuary in that house, which is the parents' bedroom which they would have left and locked and no one's gone into for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. It's like this florid, um, rosy, reddy colour that's the most dominant thing, almost too much for the eye. You yeah, know, very you much. Compared you, to the rest, for sure. Compared to the rest, indeed. It's like, it's a, wow, this is different. <laughs> mm. I also love the papercraft flowers that um, feature very heavily at the start of the film. Um, it's just yeah. great seeing papercraft on, on screen, really. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, Jane's Jay. I was talking about Peter Jackson and his sort of like model craft. Yeah, Jane's very hands-on like that. She's also loves that. I don't know, sort of traditional traditional way that um, homes were hand. You know, like I'm in my own house. Like Mum would darn our own socks and darn our sheets and all sorts of crafts like that. that yeah. That um, would have been very prevalent back in the 1920s, especially in a, a sort of a, a, a poverty-stricken family like like Roses and um, Peter. Like they've had got no money, but they still got they've still got a um, flair in their lives. You know, they've still got life, and their life is just handmade. Yeah, there's still definitely a style to both of them, um, even mm. when things are. Which I guess. I know it's more costume, but it very much contrasts with the the dirtiness of the the, the I guess cowboys, the ranchers. Yeah, yeah. One quick one: um, the mountains that look like a dog barking or laughing. Do they actually look like that? I couldn't see it, or are they just mountains? They're just mountains. It's <laughs> okay. called the Hawkton Range back there, but yeah. the, the the dog didn't exist. Okay. The, uh, Did they do it's it? It's called yeah, they didn't CGI. Okay. I mean, it's called pareidolia, and some people are more sensitive to pareidolia. They see things. You know, it's like seeing a face in a cliff yeah. face, or yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like lion rock, or um, you know, there's lots of instances like that. So, um, yeah, and uh, so it wanted to be again. It's a fundamental story point. It wanted to be there hmm. for to be seen, but. It's not seen by everybody. Yeah. You need to be sensitive to it. And, you know, it's, it talked, it's like a beautiful layered way of telling the story about Phil Burbank, you know. I mean, his, his sort of um, homosexuality was kind of there for all to see, but it's not at the same time mm. if you're not looking for it. And it's like, um, you know, his, his sort of, um, you had to peel back the layers of Phil to be able to understand the, the, um, genesis of this um family eruption and his his um you know how he interrelates with and sees peter as a threat and then as a as a sort of a conquest mm. you know etc 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 so the the pareidolia of that dog is symbolic of that yes say. yeah i'm gonna have to go back and uh, look out for it I, I missed it while the film was was playing mm. yeah and i i know we're only going to talk about three films, but just very quickly to mention King Kong. Um, you designed, obviously, like lots of the, the Skull Island is very green sets. And I haven't talked to someone about um, that kind of element mm. before. Um, how much did you film in real jungle and how much were kind of constructed sets for you to, mm. for the characters to move around in? Yeah. 99% of that film was shot in the stages. Wow. So all those forests were done and on the stage, nice, <clears throat> including um, you know full size set pieces, of, as I say, but also miniatures. A lot of miniatures. So you know when you see off into the tree canopies at the back of the back of the forest, that'd be um, all miniatures. Again, Alex Funky, the um, <laughs> amazing DP, was yeah. um, was uh, um, part and parcel of that. And uh, Andrew, of course, Andrew was the DP. But um, and then. Uh, some amount of visual extensions, you yeah. know. So again, Peter was very keen to, and the aesthetic of the movie shows it that we wanted to do as much of this practical as we can. I really think it it brought out that sort of gritty, difficult, um, 
uh, sharp and jagged sort of um, world that we were looking for. So the green sets, going back to them, they were um, they would fill up the entire stage, but they the they were so large that we would be able to shoot different um, pieces of drama in different parts of the of the set. Yeah, you know, and by and then by altering the extensions, we were able to make them look different. Interestingly, though, um, a lot of the action sequences that happened in the forest were pre-visualized, and they were pre-vis before we even designed and built the sets. So, um, and part of that pre-visualization had dinosaurs in them, <laughs> and the, di- the 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 development of the dinosaurs um, in the digital realm were happening concurrent to us. Um, building the sets. Yeah. So by the time we got to finish the sets, Peter was able to have a look at the action sequences that would happen with the dinosaurs. Um, you know, uh, he could see them sort of uh, th- through his screen. Yeah. And so as a consequence, the um, the the geography of the landscape that um, Anne Dara, the character was um, Naomi Watts, was running over, needed to be the same as the digital dinosaurs that were already done. So we were finding ourselves having to have to um, <clears throat> reverse engineer the these digital landscapes into practical um, landforms, yeah. which is interesting. What's the process of doing that? Is it, um, yeah, because you can't, it's not a static shot. You can't just kind of move things around in the background to suit it. How would you go about, uh, I guess, reverse engineering such a space? Well, in the digital realm, they would have been built as a 3D model yeah. and a 3D environment, in fact, which then we would scale. And then um, what we'd do is like almost like a um, we'd slice it, we'd slice it digitally and get all these, a series of profiles that um, then we could translate into, into uh, timber and uh, plaster and uh, fiberglass and what have you. That's a fascinating process. So yeah, so talking about King Kong, um, one thing I really loved was how, um, like you were saying, how textural the whole thing is. And I think that that's something that many CGI blockbusters seem to lose, that kind of, yeah, I guess a textual nature. And I'm, not, I'm sure CGI is getting better and better every day, as I know it is, but there was just something kind of, I think maybe it's as you're saying, the use of miniatures, it just feels so much mm. more tangible. Yeah, yeah, well, look, it's... Uh... You're absolutely right. You know, I find that I'm, I lose my concentration when I'm looking at these gigantic things that I just don't believe. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, often it's sort of conceptual, you know, like yeah. I, I'm looking at something that some art director has kind of like conjured up or like some, you know, uh, director's conjured up and I just don't, I'm not there, you know. So to me, it works at its best when it's most subtle in, in some ways, you know, and um like Power of the Dog was one of those. You did ask earlier on about like how much CGI there was. There was very little in it, but what? The, but actually, the entire top of the house, you know, the roof of the house is all CGI things like that. But you never question it because no. you never asked to sort of um, look at something so fantastical. But yeah, it's just the tangibility and the the sort of um, textual quality of real things. And I think even these days, you know, a lot of um, uh, things like um, Planet of the Apes and what have you, They even though there's a lot of massive amount of visual effects, they still like to shoot these things outside on a location. And then with all the subtleties of the light and the wind and the, um, the immediate environment being real and then um, 
go about altering the the background and yep. adding in their digital characters and things like that. So I think in a way it's coming a full circle from mm. something that you could just sort of say, oh, well, that'll be done in post to um, something that we're now coming back to valuing the the um, the built environment, not just for from a production designer's point of view, but for the actor's point of view and the director's point of view. Everybody likes standing on the real thing as much as possible. Oh, for sure. And, yeah. I mean, it's a difficult, doing miniatures is quite a difficult ask these days. You know, that is expensive and yeah. it's um, it requires, you know, deep skills to be able to make it work. And so, you know, that normally these days get bumped off into visual effects. Um, but Yeah, no, yeah. I, I much prefer it. I'm slightly bored of CGI monsters fighting CGI monsters. Mm. Um, <laughs> I think yeah, my, uh, think my mind tunes out just a little, a yeah. little bit. And it's yeah. that kind of small imperceptible tune out that loses you really, um, yeah. which is a shame. Um, so one thing I, I like to ask people is um, what you look for in an assistant, and this could be on any level. And um, mm. is there any specific characteristics mm. or what new people coming into the industry or anyone really could, um, yeah, what you look for? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I in the New Zealand film industry we don't often have like designers assistants per se we have mm. art department assistants yeah and um but the the people these days that come out of film school and architecture school and things like that have computer skills that are directly relevant to what we how we work now maya and um you know all these sorts of um you know like rhino and um you know editing programs and all these sorts of things are where it's at now so those sort of technical skills are important it's also like a, um, it's a very competitive, difficult job to get into here where I work. And uh, we don't have mentorships or anything like that. It's built into our industry here, sadly. Um, so it usually takes a lot of um, audacity and, um, you know, like persistency and, um, you know, just enthusiasm to be able to get in, elbow your way in. And to um, be noticed and do do good work, you know. So I think that's what a lot of it is. You get, nothing's given, you know. If you work, if you come in there thinking that oh, I'm going to be given everything, or I'm going to, you know, just kind of sit in a corner and you know do this, that, and the other, it, <laughs> yeah. it's not how it works here. You know, you have to get get in, get involved and be in, you know be willing to learn. That's the main thing because there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn. Yeah. It sounds, you know, it can sound a lot. And look a lot easier than what it actually is to yeah. to learn all the skills needed for this. Yeah, mm. it's so true. And I think actually some of the subtleties that you um, you kind of don't really think about, such as um, set etiquette, uh, like mm. knowing who to talk to and how to talk to them. And um, I do a lot mm. of commercials, and it's just the, the simple thing of like the tone in terms of how you talk to, you know, a client or an agency or your equivalent mm. would be like the producer or an exec. Um, mm. Do you find that you end up changing your way of speaking? Yeah, in New Zealand we don't do that. It's, not, it's hierarchical, <laughs> to be honest. You know, yeah. and uh, you know, builders talk to DPs and directors talk to costume, you know, yeah. soft furnishing people, and um, that's just how it works here. So it pays not to have too much of a sort of a hierarchy in mind per se. Yeah, I prefer but, that. <laughs> um, it it does. Um, you know, the, this collaborative process is. Um, you know, sort of treasured in a way, and I think that's really the 
conversations we have, like, am I having a conversation with somebody who's sensitive to ideas? Do they trust me? Do they, um, you know, am I talking on the same wavelength as them? And all that sort of stuff is more important to me, you know. Um, you know, you do try and be friendly with the producers and all that sort of stuff, but um, New Zealanders do like to sort of um, not be talked down to or... Um, Feel like they are not late, are not able to say things. Mm. They don't out of politeness often, but you know they they um it's not as though there's a sort of a line you could cross or anything like that. Yeah, I much prefer that. I think I, I'm far too casual. <laughs> I'd probably do well in New Zealand. Good on you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, I asked some questions to some people on the Instagram, and um, one of the questions that was asked was um, um, do you ever feel nervous or worried? Um, when you start a new project and at which stage of the process you might have these feelings if you do? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question, actually. I'm going through them right now. Um, it is a stressful job and it's, mm. it does have anxieties and things like that. The more, you know, I'm getting old now, so I've, there's, um, I'm more relaxed with my abilities and, and uh, um, there is a particular time, though, which is when... Yeah, there's a lot of blue sky thinking at the beginning of a project where the it, the film can be anything in, mm. a, in a way, you know, notwithstanding the constraints of time and budget and script and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but there's a there's often you sort of are working up these this conceptual sort of style and look of a film that is um, needing a lot of a lot of pitching, you know, a lot of getting people to believe in the direction that you're going in with the with the design and um you know at the moment um i don't even have a dp so you know i'm making a lot of assumptions on that person's behalf about how things would be lit and shot and all that sort of thing um and who knows what this personality is going to be like you know um so yeah it's a lot of these early days, it's you're sort of venturing out into sort of a new new lands, you know, in the boat going over the horizon to a new sort of thing, and it's uh, a lot of things can happen on the way, and and uh, a lot of things can happen when you arrive at a place that you don't know about. So you just have to assume and trust that the people you're working with and that the um, the, the studio hierarchy, for example, and the, and all that sort of thing are going to um, buy into this thing that you've spent, in my case, at the moment, months creating. You know? <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it's not to say I'm not communicating with people already, but there's, there's, um, there's anxieties on that point of view. There's also, there's, uh, you know, a lot of, I'm lucky that a lot of people I work with I know already, that, that I know the sculptors, I don't know the painters, I don't know the construction guys and all that sort of stuff. So I'm, I trust all those guys. But things don't always go to plan, you know, because we're always trying to do new things. There's always new ideas, there's new techniques and um, new technologies and things like that. So it's a, they're always new territory that we're covering. And um, it's those sorts of things that sort of um, give me some anxieties. Oh. And as a last question, I'd love to hear what one of your favourite things or some of your favourite things about the job is. 
Oh, look, uh, the, definitely the most favourite thing is walking onto a finished set on the day of shoot. Mm. And you can see my job is done at that point, <laughs> yeah. I've got to say. The job is done. I hand it over to the on-set art department people to sort of wrangle from shot to shot. The um, But you can see from concept, and I was talking about the anxieties of coming up with these ideas, mm. continually coming up with ideas, there's usually a full circle. There's a circle from coming up with the, the nub of an idea in your brain to standing in front of something that is there and manifested and lit and powered up and ready to go. That's really, really, really exciting. And it happens on a daily basis sometimes, you know, this, this, with the turnover of, of the material that we do. It's, um, it's brilliant. And sometimes you pinch yourself, like, am I really doing this? You know, <laughs> is this really the job I do? Yeah. And, and my sort of wonderful crew of people doing it together, you know, so it's cool. That's one instance. The other instance, I guess, is like um, when people start to understand what the the builders and the painters and all that sort of stuff, they often beaver away in their own workshops and, and craft areas and things like that. And they, you know, they're just following instructions or working on a piece of a drawing or, you know, making these bits and pieces. And then when things start coming together, you can see on their faces that, oh, so this is what, this is what the idea is. So this is what the set's going to be, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's much the same. So it's just interrelating with creative people, sort of, um, you know, above and below where I work, and you know, getting a real kick out of it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a fantastic place to finish. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, you're welcome, Max. Yeah. Thanks. The show's intro was composed by Sam McGrail, mixed by Max Bloom, and the artwork was created by Alec Jagodzinski.